This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And I'm game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Whether Risk Legacy is a story game. How to account for player unpredictability when weaving narrative into a role-playing game. How Ken's time machine stops World War I. And Dark Knight Rises, Christopher Nolan's capper to his Batman trilogy. Ken, our first uh, topic for uh, this podcast is? Uh, the first topic is an entry into the um, uh, comforting uh, shelter wa- sheltering walls of the gaming hut. Uh, is Risk Legacy a story game? Uh, Risk Legacy, of course, the amazing new Diana Jones Award-nominated uh, version of Risk by Rob Davio and Chris Dupuis. And uh, the question is, is it a story game? And uh, the question comes, I suppose, from your crazy, fertile mind, Robin. So why don't you step up and take a swing? Yes, indeed. So uh, first, before we uh, tackle the question of a story game, I would also like to note that uh, Risk Legacy is nerd-troped. And that is when you uh, take a pre-existing, non-fantastical genre, in this case the geopolitical war game, and then you add some sort of uh, nerd-friendly, geekaholic, uh, reference point to it, whether that be uh, vampires or ghosts or witches, or in this case, Mecca. So uh, Risk Legacy is now has giant robots, as, as the kids today insist. Uh, so this is a, an introduction to the concept of nerd troping, to which I think we'll be returning uh, over and over in this podcast. <laughs> I think that's a, that's a fair bet. Yes. However, uh, the, the reason I'm posing this question uh, takes us back to the uh, primordial dawn of role-playing uh, games, uh, which of course is shrouded in mystery with uh, repeated accounts and uh, uh, sort of a Rashomon-like story of who came up with what. But we know that uh, Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson, uh, together possibly with Dave McGarry, uh, came up with the ideas that turned into role-playing as we know it. Uh, what they were setting out to do was basically create a new form of war game in which the unit size was reduced to one dude, uh, possibly in a pointy hat. And what they wound up doing, however, is because they had a protagonist and because they had persistence, they had uh, the effects of one uh, run of a game affect a later run of a game, you had a protagonist plus persistence, and from that, you had the rudiments of narrative. Now, it took a lot longer for us to sort of start to realize the potential of that, and for example, we had uh, Call of Cthulhu, which is uh, may have been the first game to consciously uh, model itself on on this particular story structure of a particular genre of narrative. In that case, the horror story. Uh, but you had those incipient elements to allow that to happen as soon as they uh, had a protagonist and persistence. Now, Risk Legacy does not have a protagonist per se, but it does have persistence. Uh, when you start playing, you're given a choice between uh, one uh, set of powers or another, represented by a card, and when you make that choice, you make an irrevocable choice for every other game of Risk Legacy that you play with that particular boxed game that you've purchased. So what happens there is you actually have to rip up the other card. Uh, so horrors of horrors, Ken. Uh, I just have to say that I also enjoy the psychic destabilization of that choice. 
Yeah, there's um, there's certainly there, there's a great deal of effort is put into making the narrative truly persistent, as opposed to just I'll get you next time. Uh, I mean, not only do you rip up the card, then you're as the game goes on. Uh, I think I can say without spoilers, you'll be ripping up more things. You'll be marking up the board. You'll be putting down stickers that you can't remove. I mean, you are definitely uh, engaged in a real. A mood-setting series of acts of, of vandalism, and of a sort that, as gamers, we are considered to consider. You know, it's like um, uh, spitting on the Bible. You know, you you just uh, you don't tear up a card, you don't you know uh, destroy a, a game piece. That's 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 what barbarians and little sisters and cats do. Exactly, it's, it strikes at the heart of the whole collector mania part of. Uh... Uh, of uh, gaming and uh, all of its associated uh, uh, geekly activities. And I, I think it's a really great sort of just punch in the nose right to the beginning, but also it has the effect of you see the uh, narrative, if we are in fact going to decide to call it that, uh, physicalize itself as you progressively deface and stickerize and mark up your game over time so that each individual different box of Rick's legacy that has been played with is a physical record of a process of attrition that has resulted in what might or might not be a narrative. So the question uh, that I'm posing today then is, is that enough? Is that enough to make it a, a story in addition to a sequence of events? Because it's uh, we're not looking at a protagonist, but we're seeing uh, the rise and fall of different power blocks. So is it a story? I think that um, uh, certainly if, as we've gone into the, the sort of the post-sorcerer, post-My um, uh, Life with Master era, as we're you know looking at more different ways to look at uh, role-playing, I think that the story game community, the story game community of players and designers, both tend to define story game broadly rather than narrowly. And I'm fairly sure that if you look at something like Microscope, for example, which is also a game with no protagonist, uh, that they would call that a uh, story game. Microscope being the game uh, in which you build uh, a history by mutual narrative fiat uh, is, I guess, the best way to put it. But there's no, there's certainly there's no protagonist unless you add a protagonist in any more than there's a protagonist in a war game unless you suddenly decide that this particular um, uh, T-34 uh, counter is my favorite T-34 counter and will be the real hero of the Battle of Kursk or whatever it is you're modeling. And, and often during my uh, abortive attempts to play uh, war games, uh, Avalon Hill games, before Dungeons & Dragons came along and turned out to be, you know, my real flavor. Uh, when I played it with my friend, friend uh, 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 we would kind of narrate what was going on, and we would, I'm not sure if we would create characters, but we certainly add the level of verbal description that you would not necessarily uh, require in order to play a war game. Yeah, I, I think that that's, that, that's, to an extent, that's a natural thing that happens whenever there's a sequence is that we turn it into a narrative, whether it's a narrative with a protagonist or not. Uh, you know, you, you can look at that as people, like you were saying um, uh, uh, previously about the continuum where they sort of assemble all the events of their uh, free form into the story of what actually happened. And in those cases, I think every single one of them considers themselves something of the protagonist of the story. And I think in Risk Legacy, you may not be, you know, specifically saying I'm Napoleon because I drew Western Europe as my starting land, but you're certainly sort of, you know, uh, invested in the uh, uh, power and and fall of the of the blue guys or the red guys or whatever kind of color guys you drew. So I think that you know, once again, without the protagonist, that would be your certainly your bright line. But 
given the degree of protagonizing the player that is uh, created uh, by the act by the overt acts of destroying and uh, mutilating the board, um, I think that you're 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 certainly getting a lot of the same psychological effect that you would if you also had a little guy who was you know Napoleon Bonaparte or um, uh, uh, Andrew Jackson or or whoever and was in charge of conquering the world for your uh, specific batch of plastic army men and mecha and and missiles and whatnot. And indeed, a lot of games uh, assume a sort of figure that you're kind of role-playing a guy, like even Magic the Gathering, you are playing a sorcerer who otherwise does not appear in any way in the game, but you're the guy who's trying to uh, hit the other sorcerer sitting across the table for 20 points of damage. So it's easy enough to imagine the guy who's controlling all of this, who presumably is a Napoleon-like leader, and that uh, if you uh, start doing that, then you are role-playing a war game. Yeah, and and again, I I think that people have role-played war games since before there were role-playing games. And as you mentioned, I think that that's what uh, Dave and Gary and his buddies were doing there on the sand table when they were uh, deciding that what they wanted was a slightly larger hit of the role-playing juju that they were getting already from, you know, whichever Napoleonic or or fantasy battle they were doing. So I I think we can say, you know, Risk Legacy is on that sort of that, that bubble area but that if Microscope is a story game, I think Risk Legacy almost has to be a story game because it does have a deliberately constructed narrative, uh, I mean, as part of the rules. Uh, you, you can look at it as a guided uh, storytelling accompaniment, like, say, uh, Paul Zega's Bacchanal, which, uh, again, the protagonist is fairly well abstracted to being, you know, you wake up, you know, on the uh, slopes of the, of the volcano on Bacchus's holy day and... And there's there's no character generation or anything like that. So there's a I, I think it's something something using sort of a, a bacchanal level of, of technology to create a microscope level history. And you could certainly story it up, right? You could take the events that play out over a game of or a series of games of Risk Legacy, and you could play a game of Risk Legacy one week. The next week, you could play a, a role playing game using your favorite mecha rules, in which the uh, tales of a you know a pilot-level group of people uh, taking part in the previous battle are, are played out in which, uh, you know, the uh, what's already sort of been determined about what happens during the fights can then be sort of the background for your typical mecha pilot soap opera thing. Yeah, and in, in much the same way that you can do uh, Pendragon, both on the uh, historical level, where you sort of pull back and, and run through the, uh, the the Saxon invasion or the quest for the Grail or whatnot, and then drill down to your individual knight and then to his... Uh, descendant and uh, and so forth. So you can, yeah, I think that you know that that would certainly be an excellent, uh, like I say, a, a story framework or a story guide by which to do as much or as little role playing as you as you think is 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 great fun. And so with that uh, wrinkle that is added by the designers of Risk Legacy, it's no wonder that it came to the attention of the mysterious masters behind the Diana Jones uh, Committee. Uh, who rewarded it with a nomination for this year's uh, Diana Jones Awards. Well, as, as we know, the Diana Jones Award Committee sees all. It is everywhere. It could be anyone, even possibly you. <laughs> uh, that seems hard to credit. It does. You're, you're a mild-mannered Canadian, for God's sake. Well, we better move on before I get whacked. Okay, so this next segment uh, is our inaugural edition of a segment we're calling Ken's Time Machine. And uh, let me, before uh, Ken explains what he's going to do in his time machine this week, uh, lay out the rules of Ken's Time Machine. Ken's Time Machine posits that Ken 
has a time machine. And with his vast mastery of historical knowledge, he is tasked uh, to go back in time and to rectify or prevent some uh, great or horrible uh, event. And uh, the, the rules are, are as follows. Uh, Ken has, uh, aside from having a time machine, which is uh, no small beans, has only his normal Ken-like powers. Uh, Ken is statted up, however, in a forgiving uh, rule system, perhaps uh, Hero Quest, where all abilities are equally valuable. And uh, with that, Ken, uh, you are called into the offices of uh, Time Incorporated, or uh, whatever uh, governmental or private entity has engaged your services to uh, alter the time stream in uh, what will hopefully be a positive way. And uh, this week they ask you to avert World War I. Uh, so you get in your time machine, and what do you do? Well, the uh, the problem with averting World War One is that uh, World War One uh, has uh, an awful lot of uh, of mixture in it. It's it's very much a train wreck sort of a situation. Um, the, the, you can you, you can certainly go back and you can read all manner of uh, of, of historians who talk about the, the the general destabilization of the European concert of powers, or the the problems of the naval race. Or the, uh, the scramble for uh, colonies, imperialism, driving up the uh, stakes of, of rivalry, and you can just look at the sheer numbers by which, uh, absent any other action, Russia would uh, have outpaced Germany both militarily and eventually economically within you know the next decade or so. And the assumption that no German government could have allowed that to happen. So World War One, to some uh, ways of thinking, is inevitable, which of course is not the uh, attitude of Ken's time machine no. in any way. So what you have to do to eliminate World War I is to eliminate the guy who, more than anyone, uh, caused World War I, and that is good old Kaiser Bill. Now, Kaiser Bill gets something of a, um, uh, of a rotten uh, 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 shaft by history. He was uh, actually for, uh, for a, a warlord of um, uh, desperate mental instability. He was a relatively progressive fellow. He... Uh, tossed Bismarck not over foreign policy, but over Bismarck's refusal to um, uh, institute worker protection laws. So, uh, you know, Kaiser Bill has his good side. But that said, uh, he however, did... as you invoked his name, there was a great crash from the heavens. So there's there's someone who still has it out for him. Right. Well, that's because of the uh, uh, decision that he took to basically stab the Western world in the neck and uh, sit there and watch it bleed out while doing nothing uh, constructive. Uh, at the, after that point, uh, his decision to uh, basically to challenge Great Britain on the high seas meant that there would be no possibility of a concert rescue of Austria-Hungary after the Serbs uh, shot uh, um, uh, Franz Ferdinand. Now, you can certainly interfere with the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. It was such a, um, uh, a, a comedy of errors that even uh, statted up in a staunchly unforgiving system, I could probably have prevented it just by, you know... Oh, are you saying that Gerbs Kenheit could do this? Gerbs Kenheit could even prevent the assassination of uh, of uh, Franz Ferdinand. Uh, you, you simply get Gavrilo Princip drunk, which is well within my skill set. And then he isn't on his right corner, and when the... Uh, uh, a motorcade passes by his corner the second time. He's not there to uh, take his uh, fatal shot. But uh, by then, uh, Kaiser Bill had worked uh, Europe up into such a frenzy that they were literally willing to allow Austria-Hungary to be destroyed. And it's important to recognize that this is unprecedented, that the whole concert of Europe exists to prevent great powers from being destroyed. And the fact that uh, Wilhelm has managed to 
simultaneously tick off every single other great power, including, in fact, Austria, is um, uh, it's a real personal accomplishment. Now, uh, the uh, time that what you do now is you go and you look for places where Kaiser Bill could have been taken out, uh, and uh, sadly, uh, even in the most forgiving of rule sets, uh, Ken is not up to smothering Kaiser Bill as a baby and uh, letting uh, Prince Henry uh, take his place. Well, time incorporating does expressly forbid baby smothering. As well it should. Yes. Um, And uh, the trouble, of course, being that if you kill him as a baby, then Prince Henry, who in in real history, uh, his his next uh, older brother, was a perfectly decent fellow and would have made a dandy Kaiser, uh, probably grows up with a lot of the same psychological problems that uh, gave us Kaiser Bill in the first place. Uh, He doesn't have the withered arm, so there's not that. But he's still the crown prince in the fundamentally dysfunctional institution of monarchy. So in this alternate universe, instead of the band Franz Ferdinand is instead referred to as Dandy Kaiser. Dandy Kaiser. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and, um, uh, or maybe it's called Franz Ferdinand because they're big fans of internal uh, policy reform in the, the Habsburg monarchy. I mean, maybe that's what it is. Who knows the, the, the ways of temporal inertia grind mysterious. So one's, uh, certainly one's favorite notion of taking Kaiser Bill out is that in 1890, he attends a, uh, an exib- exhibition of Buffalo Bill's Wild West show in which, uh, he sees Annie Oakley engaged in trick shooting. And in a, uh, <laughs> traditional, uh, Wilhelmine, uh, uh, orgy of Make It All About Me, he demands that she shoot the cigarette out of his hand. And I don't know how familiar you are with uh, Annie Oakley, but I uh, would have to, um, I, I would have to hope that I would be capable of uh, inveigling Annie Oakley uh, at the very least into an ill-considered um, uh, a drink or seven, uh, such that uh, by the time she is getting ready to aim her rifle at Kaiser Bill, her judgment and perhaps even her legendary aim is slightly impaired. And he I'm is, beginning to notice a theme in your temporal uh, infiltrations here. Well, once once we are restricted to my actual skill set, Robin, you'll find that there is a... a uh, when, when all you have is a glass of gin, everything looks like a cocktail, to paraphrase. Yes. Um, well, clearly now, you have a mastery five in uh, inveigling the drunk. Exactly. But uh, sadly, um, uh, any Oakley... Uh, shooting Kaiser Bill, while deeply poetic, might very well have caused the same sort of general uh, distaste for for the Anglo-Saxon powers that Kaiser Bill's actual policies did. Now, the good thing about shooting him in 1890 is that his son, at that point, uh, Prince Wilhelm, is only nine, and good old Prince Henry, the guy who I want to be Kaiser in the first place, gets to be regent during the crucial period of uh, uh, Prince Wilhelm's youth. Now, of course, what that possibly means is that when Prince Wilhelm does become the legitimate uh, king of uh, Kaiser in, I believe that would be uh, 1910, that he is just as resentful of good old Uncle Heinrich as Kaiser Bill was of his own father, and we get the same situation just starting a decade late. Um, But the, or actually 1900 is when he comes to power if we shoot uh, Kaiser Bill in in, uh, in, uh, 1890. So, uh, it's it's difficult to say whether that does anything, but we do have ten years of progress going down the uh, going down the path of not, for example, putting turpits in charge of the navy, not uh, engaged uh, engaging in uh, brinksmanship over Morocco or over 
other places that uh, Wilhelm inserted Germany's uh, uh, attitude. And most importantly, it not even if Germany acts like every other imperialist power of the era, it doesn't do it with Kaiser Wilhelm's unique tone deafness and incapacity for understanding and his uh, bizarre psychological love-hate relationship with Britain. Uh, the, the smart play for Germany, obviously, is to continue to monkey with the Entente. So to prevent France and Russia from allying, prevent England and Russia from allying, prevent England and France from allying. Now, this is not, you know, it, it shouldn't take Otto von Bismarck to do this. Uh, England and, and uh, Russia nearly come to blows uh, numerous times in India. England and France actually almost come to blows in Africa at, at Fashoda and then uh, have run into numerous competitions. Just keeping the Entente from stabilizing is is a perfectly legitimate foreign policy for Germany. And uh, once I have uh, uh, eliminated uh, Kaiser Bill by suborning Annie Oakley's aim, it, it might be possible that 10 years of Prince Heinrich is, is just enough and that uh, uh, Crown Prince Wilhelm, who, in fairness to him, uh, became sick of World War I much earlier than his father did, uh, might very well have not felt that it was, uh, it, it was the, the direction he wanted to go to try and build up the Navy and challenge uh, simultaneously Great Britain and Russia for dominance. Uh, you possibly would have still gotten a war with Russia over Serbia, but would he have sent the trains uh, west to France in the absence of a functioning Entente? It's doubtful. Uh, the other possibility, of course, is uh, no drinking required, simply stabilizing a uh, anarchist. Uh, in 1901, a guy takes a shot at Kaiser uh, Bill in Bremen and actually manages to hit him, so simply... Um, uh, inveigling myself into the good graces of a local anarchist community and simple American firearms discipline should be enough to make that shot uh, go true. The downside to that, of course, is that by 1901, the German um, uh, naval program is underway, and you, it's very possible that the damage has already been done. Now, the fact that you have a domestic German anarchist shooting the Kaiser in lieu of an American may mean that uh, Prince Wilhelm, when he becomes Kaiser, uh, has uh, more latitude domestically to climb down off the anti-British power. Uh, and, and it would also ruin that great uh, killing the Kaiser dance sequence in Annie Got Your Gun. It would. It would It would wreck Annie Got Your Gun, uh, where she is um, uh, immediately uh, liberated from the angry German security police by Buffalo Bill and a, and a, a host of cowboys. Um, it, Annie Oakley shooting Kaiser Bill is just so perfect and poetic that I'm sure that that's what Time Incorporated wants, even if there may or may not be a couple of uh, unpleasant downsides with the rivalry over Samoa or something. Well, if there's unpleasant downsides, Time Incorporated will just send you back to uh, to deal with those. And if they can be solved by getting drunk with Annie Oakley, then I think that that problem will be solved. So much the better. Uh, well, I guess that then uh, closes this edition of uh, Ken's Time Machine. Uh, if, uh, listeners, you head outside and look up into the sky and see dirigibles overhead, uh, you'll know what happened. time once again for Ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. This question comes to us from Nolan S. 
I get that you're big on using the game to weave a narrative, but haven't you found that the sheer, sometimes perverse, unpredictability of player action is something of a stumbling block? Most story plots require a level of control and structure that a GM just doesn't have in his games, unless he's railroading. So how do you compensate for that? You need a way of including player choice into your narrative, even if those choices defy traditional story structure. But you also need to keep things on track so the story doesn't flounder around and become too random. Well, my answer to this uh, will start with a uh, dreaded neologism, uh, which I am conflicted about. On, on one half, uh, hand, I dislike buzzwords, but on the other hand, I think this is a too important distinction, which is that as a GM, your goal should not be storytelling, but story making. That you're not coming to the table with a predetermined narrative. You may have a backup narrative uh, if your players uh, turn out to be kind of passive and are looking for direction. But really, ideally, what you're looking to do is to incorporate what happens at the table into a collaborative story that is uh, not what you're pre-imposing, but that develops spontaneously as you go. Yeah, I think that... Um, uh... The, the great thing about uh, role-playing is that there, there is this level of, of chance and uh, surprise and player decisions that don't make any uh, immediate sense. And part of the fun of being a GM is trying to sort of retroactively figure out which of those odd choices can be uh, pulled on later to uh, be woven back into the story. Which of them turn out to be the, the disaster that lets the bad guy uh, get the drop on you? Which of them turn out to be the brilliant... Uh, uh, in retrospect, action that lets them escape from the death trap. Uh, as the GM, the player choices are not obstacles to the story. They are the raw material of the story. They're what you're building the story out of. And if you look at, uh, you know, any great, uh, narrative, there's going, there are, uh, subplots and, and B stories and, uh, plot threads and, oh, wouldn't it have been awesome if, you know, this were true or that were true? Uh, and you can do that with, with any sort of, uh, you know, even a, a pre-existing written narrative has lots of branch points and, uh, and mysteries and, and curiosities. And certainly an improvisational story narrative like, uh, role-playing games, it, it has those in spades. There's a, there's a million possibilities. So I don't think that the problem exists on the players are too creative end. I think the problem exists on the GM is not comfortable enough with the act of, of, as you say, story making, and either wants to read them his unfinished novel, which is uh, tiresome in the extreme, or is sort of sitting around hoping that a story uh, congeals by itself, which is no more productive than hoping that the Millennium Falcon builds itself out of that big box of Legos. And at some point, the GM has to start putting Legos together. And the great thing about um, uh, role-playing is if you need a curvy piece uh, with a gun on it, it's not crazily hard to get the players to bring you a curvy piece and a gun. Maybe they bring them on the same piece. Maybe they bring you a straight piece that you can uh, uh, extend as a differently shaped flange than the one you had in your head. But you're you're engaged in a collaboration. You're providing uh, ingredients and uh, uh, and sort of an, an endpoint to a given scene or a notional um, uh, story arc. And the players are providing, ideally all of the building material. And I think that that's that, that collaboration, that collaborative nature is why we do role playing in the first place. And the player surprise, you know, looked at from a story making perspective instead of a storytelling perspective, that's just more raw material for your story. And part of this comes down to the way that published adventures are presented because there, you have a dilemma when you're writing an adventure, which is that you can write it as a whole, you know, sort of laundry list of possibilities, uh, which the, 
GM and then players can then kind of weave together on the go, uh, which if the uh, GM is already adept at improvising, uh, will go really well, but does not read that well on the page versus a more kind of structured approach, which is more enjoyable to read. And if you look at it only as sort of a uh, whole bunch of raw materials of, of story bricks that you can take and assemble in response to what people do. And hopefully, you know, even a d detailed uh, adventure that has a lot of, you know, this happens, if this happens, still has a lot of different branch points and takes care of the most obvious ones. But it can sort of mislead you if you're used to reading adventures and thinking that it has to come out exactly the way that I vividly imagined it when I read the adventure, as opposed to here's a kit, which is kind of assembled into a form that is engaging to read, but which you have to allow the players to disassemble and uh, kind of make leap, imaginative leaps in order to, to compensate when they go in different directions. And it also depends on the type of structure that you're aiming for. For example, a mystery structure, the assumption is a little bit more that, uh, depending on how you want to do it, there's very different ways of doing mysteries. Inspectors does uh, as you weave the answer to the mystery as you go along in a more conventional setup like Call of Cthulhu and its various uh, descendants like Trail of Cthulhu, the players, I think, sort of want to feel that there already is an answer that they're working to solve and kind of feel a little cheated if they know that it's all just improvised because there's sort of a, a puzzle aspect to that. But even in that and the mystery is maybe the, the tightest structure of all, you still ideally have a lot of uh, either branch points within the mystery itself or different story points that parallel the mystery, either sort of personal developments for the characters or the sorts of danger that they get into that introduce a degree of uncertainty that create the space for players to insert their own stories and uh, make that broader story. I think that uh, we can usefully uh, look at the parallel uh, in terms of, of, of story building, not just in terms of story structure, that some... Uh, adventures, uh, the classic dungeon being the, the, the great example, um, are fairly black box story-wise. Uh, you go into the dungeon, you have a bunch of uh, awesome adventures, which may or may not be thematically linked. You come out of the dungeon, and then it's what you do next. It's where you go next that is the actual story uh, sinew of a Dungeons & Dragons campaign. Do you go back into the dungeon to take out that lich? Do you go down the hill to uh, whale on the orcs because there was orcs in the dungeon and now you hate orcs? Do you, you know, continue to quest for the Rod of Seven I've parts? heard that there are helpless villagers in a place called Hamlet, and they all have small numbers of experience points in gold. I say we <laughs> go there. <laughs> yes. Do you do you follow the um uh, the, the the hint of the old guy in the tavern uh, <laughs> as as pressed on you? There's there's um, but 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 the notion being that the individuals the the individual dungeons are are black boxes, and and the the great campaigns, the the giant series or the drow series create a story out of those black boxes but you can do that with any sort of uh, a black box encounter based game uh, in which the story is the ongoing story of responding to that and this takes us back around to our risk legacy question where the individual games of risk legacy are perhaps your, your black box and the, the meta story that you're telling uh, becomes the thing that you use to weave those together and the interesting thing about uh, a more overtly sandboxy structure uh, where you just sort of create an environment and then let the players go poke at it, is that that depends on a player being, uh, at least one player, often one player, 
being aggressive in sort of pulling everybody else toward an agenda of some kind. And uh, it, that all depends on the makeup of your players. I often find that my players are waiting for cues. And so uh, they will often, if I just present them with a sandboxy uh, scenario, there'll be a long kind of period of, of well, what do we do? What's our plan? And uh, it really depends on your putting, putting in little uh, nuggets of uh, story that people can then activate by choosing to go after them. And sometimes that they will go after something that you didn't design as a nugget or as just sort of a throwaway detail and turn that into something important. So it's a matter of sort of listening to what the more aggressive agenda-oriented players want to do and giving them the sort of fodder to make that interesting and make that have consequences that then drag in the players who are more reactive. Yeah, there's a there's a degree to which uh, the casting of your story also sort of drives it. Uh, my methodology for getting uh, the players to start picking up rocks is that I know my players really well and I know what shape to make the rocks to get them to pick them up. It's sort of the equivalent being that you've cast you know Clint Eastwood in a movie, so odds are someone is going to get shot over the course of this story. Um, you know, I know what's going to you know make my players uh, act in in ways that. Uh, that, that I can start, turn, start turning into those story Legos or story Lincoln logs. Um, if you have a, a, a brand new suite of players or you, or you don't want to, um, uh, uh, tell that same, uh, the, use those same ingredients exactly that way, uh, then, uh, a lot of it does come either with the old guy in the tavern giving them the map to the village, the, the, un, the, the defenseless village of experience points and minor treasures, or, uh, some other sort of ticking clock. Uh, the massive Nilathotep, of course, classically says, you know, it puts you in a, a horrible, horrible, dangerous sandbox and says, at the end of, you know, a certain time period, if you don't do anything, the world is destroyed and the, the great old ones win. So you'd better be able to survive, you know, long enough to stop it. And then turns really the direction of the story over to the players and lets their knowledge that there's a, there's a time bomb. Uh, uh, work to create story tension and story direction. So there's a number of possibilities that you can do as the GM, I think, to um, to to uh, to help that story along. It also helps to be aware of when you have a dominant player or a player who tends to lead events along, to what extent they are uh, dominant in a positive way, and to what extent they tend to lead the story down blind alleys. So someone who is uh, a positive leading narrator as player is someone who will uh, create a goal that will get everybody else on board and working toward a common goal, uh, which is not necessarily an assumption of every game. Often uh, you will have games where the characters can kind of go off and work at, at side purposes or even against each other, and you can cut between the, the players, and that makes this problem uh, easier for the players who are good at thinking up what to do and tougher for the ones who are kind of reactive. Uh, the player that you need to watch out for is the one who takes focus in order to just keep it. And uh, when they tend to poke things and make things happen, they tend to sort of push the narrative in a kind of an inevitable way and often a kind of a, often a sidetrack that is uh, only a sidetrack insofar as it is uh, unsatisfying for them if resolved and unsatisfying for everyone else. So the, uh, archetypal example of that is the player who goes up and, you know, you've established that the king is extremely powerful and he's got, you know, all these heavily armed courtiers, but the uh, 
you know, the player doesn't like being lipped off to. So when the king is giving them orders, the, the player just says, I punched the king. And then you've suddenly switched from a story that's about whatever reason why you're going to talk to the king into one in which either, uh, if believability is to be maintained, that character then has to die and then is mad at you that he lost power by having that happen. Or uh, you have to then make a story about how it becomes plausible that he punched the king and survived. Yeah, the, although a lot of that uh, is sort of outside the grain of the question. Um, or is the, you know, the solution is, you know, my players always do this stupid thing. You know, the, the, the um, uh, the Jack Benny answer, well, don't do that. Um, don't play with those guys. They're obviously not capable of playing in those stories. You'd need to give them a dungeon or a, or a situation in which there are no kings to punch. Right. So, so the question is to look at what it is that's unpredictable about your players. Are they just sort of messing with stuff, uh, because they were bored with the agenda, in which case, the solution might be to find, you know, be more sandboxy and let them find an agenda that doesn't bore them. And uh, as you suggest, if they are just perennially there to uh, undermine the collective effort and make it about them, then you perhaps do not want to play with those people anymore. Right, any more than you want to go to the movies with people who talk all the time. Exactly. Speaking of movies, I think that it is uh, time to heed the siren call of uh, uh, the Cinema Hut. Indeed, I thought we would uh, talk uh, about uh, The Dark Knight Rises, which of course is the final installment in Christopher Nolan's uh, big badass Batman trilogy. Uh, so Ken, first of all, uh, what did you think of the film? I, uh, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. I am a, a fan of Christopher Nolan's. I don't think I've seen a Christopher Nolan film I didn't like. Uh, it's possible, but I, but I don't think I have. And while I didn't think that it matched uh, The Dark Knight, which is you know, nigh perfect, uh, in a lot of ways, I think that for being the the end of a trilogy, for consciously being the end of the trilogy, I think it did that job admirably well. I think that uh, it introduced uh, its characters uh, without breaking uh, the reality or without breaking the the feel of the trilogy, which was very important to be able to put Catwoman into a world that had already had Heath Ledger's Joker and uh, the Chillian Murphy's uh, Scarecrow, um, and, and so that was that was very uh, that was a much harder. Uh, thing to do than it looked like it was because Anne Hathaway and Christopher Nolan did such a great job with it. And I liked the ambition of presenting in this uh, installment the sort of the Dickensian story of the city as opposed to the um, uh, uh, making it all the story of Nightfall. Uh, the, the Batman and, and Bane have their fight and uh, etc. I think that that you know, frankly, is is the weakest part of the of the underlying source material. It, I was not a big fan of Nightfall when it happened, and nothing since then has made me uh, look back in wonder at at a lost classic that I hadn't appreciated. Now, as an old timey comic fan, it always uh, uh, you know my age of comics really was the age of uh, of uh, comics. So I read them from you know basically twelve to seventeen, and so anything that any character or event that comes after what I think of as the classic characters and events of whatever comic book franchise is being turned into a movie, I always kind of think, well, who's this Bane guy? You know, he doesn't go back to, uh, you know, 1957, not that I was reading comics in 1957, but he certainly wasn't 
in the comics in the late uh, 70s and early 80s, so uh, who's this guy? And so when I look him up on Wikipedia and it looks like he's uh, kind of a Mexican masked wrestler, it seems like a uh, great achievement on Nolan's part to not only sort of reconfigure that character, but to make him seem interesting to me and to make him seem like a, uh, a part of the mythos that maybe he isn't in his uh, original comic book version. Yeah, I, I, I think I think that um, uh, throughout the the, the trilogy, uh, Nolan has been doing a an excellent job of presenting. One doesn't want to say a realistic Gotham City, but a Gotham City that has a more grounded feeling, that is less what do I want to say less hyper real than a uh, than than the good old Silver Age Gotham City right. with uh, all the other it, stuff. It's not Schumacher by any means. No, well, thank God. And I, I think that certainly when you when you aim as high as Nolan was doing with that uh, with with the third movie, you you know you're going to miss a lot more than if he just said, okay, all I'm going to do is tell the Nightfall story. There's going to be a cute scene with Catwoman, and you know, bam, everyone makes a billion dollars. We're happy. So uh, he he needed more he needed more screen time for some of the things that he wanted his film to accomplish. And the fact that it was two hours and forty five minutes is the reason why he didn't get that screen time. But if ever there was a movie that cried out to be uh, given the uh, self-indulgent uh, five-hour director's cut, I think it's um, uh, it's this one. And like Apocalypse Now, uh, I think it would actually very much improve with another hour of indulgent director uh, directorial choices. Um, and as amazing as that was to say about Apocalypse Now, I think it's even clearer uh, that it's true about Dark Knight Rises. Well, I certainly agree with you that the middle film is really the apex. And for me, there's something about that film that so uh, almost completely, there's a bit at the end that I that I feel that I kind of take issue with, but almost throughout the entire uh, second film, there is a sense of the established rules of screenwriting and of movie storytelling basically being thrown out the window. And that there's all of these sort of parallel narratives that just sort of get started and immediately throws you into this world and there's uh it's not even clear how many different protagonists uh, there are there might be as many as three or four of them uh and uh it really is sort of an epic story that goes way beyond the typical three-act structure and that very uh smoothly integrates its exposition into the action so the action begins and then along the way they catch you up with what's going on uh, if you wanted to knock the new down, uh, new film down a few points, there the first act uh, we're, we're back in a more conventional act structure. First of all, and uh, there's mostly throughout there's uh, a protagonist and an antagonist, and the first chunk of the film, the first act, is very busily erecting all of the plot mechanism that then has to get going. So in this case, you could sort of argue that the film doesn't really get started until the uh, 20 or 30 minute mark, which is a bit of an issue in a very long film uh, that wouldn't necessarily be an issue if you're watching a gigantic director's cut later on DVD at home. But again, the um, uh, the, the first 20 or 30 minutes of, of, the, of the film, it begins with that terrific uh, set piece uh, on the plane, which I hesitate to say any more about in case someone hasn't seen Batman yet. But that to me, that's sort well, of... The, if you the, haven't seen Batman yet, we've assumed that you've Stop the podcast about uh, 15 minutes ago and are going to religiously listen to it after you see the, the film. Right. Okay. Uh, in that case, the, um, uh, the, the plane hijacking is a, is a James Bond opener to, to cut all James Bond openers. 
And given that, uh, they could have spent, you know, I, I think that, uh, that, that while you're right about the, the narrative, uh, brush clearing and such, I think that, uh, Nolan very much pays you in adrenaline for the, uh, the, the period of the film where he's going to have the, the character establishment and, and starting all of the, the plot wheels turning stuff that he does in the, in the, in, in the first, you know, third or so of the film. So I find know, a lot of my comments about this movie are sort of over the structure. While extremely awesome, it's no equivalent thing in Dark Knight. So right. uh, that was awesome, but then the bank heist in a Dark Knight was like a a awesome cubed. Right. Well, Dark Knight had, had had this singular genius inspiration by Nolan that he was not making a Batman movie. He was making a uh, crime movie, and I would say specifically a Hong Kong crime movie that had Batman in it. And this movie couldn't really be made that way because it's meant to close out the Batman story. And so there has to be more Batman in it than there was in The Dark Knight. And for a, a movie that is supposed to be then about Batman, there's actually a, a fairly uh, limited amount of, of Batman. Well, there's a reason for that, uh, which is that really uh, Dark Knight Rises could be titled It's a Wonderful Life, Batman, uh, <laughs> because this is a film about what happens when Batman doesn't exist anymore, uh, and uh, and the destruction of uh, Gotham by uh, Bane and company is essentially uh, analogous to uh, what happens to Pottersville uh, when uh, uh, the Jimmy Stewart character doesn't exist in the timeline of It's a Wonderful Life. Although, again, I think that uh, another couple of scenes uh, establishing the difference between the two Gothams would have been would would have been worthwhile. Uh, in It's a Wonderful Life, we all instantly flash on, you know, the the the, the numerous scenes where uh, Capra presents the difference between Pottersville and uh, Bedford Falls, and then in uh, the Dark Knight, either because of the constraints of filming or because they're just you know he couldn't put in any more scenes. The the post Bane scenes of Gotham don't appreciably differ in terms of set design or society. Certainly the exteriors don't from the pre-Bane scenes of Gotham. The city's pretty much, you know, clean and picked up. And the difference is that it's winter uh, in, in the, in, in the destitute of the revolution uh, than rather than summer, which it is uh, before Bane shows up. So I think that there's, this is the thing where it's like, um, uh, while awesome, the dark Knight rises, could have been more awesome given this, you know, four or five, six, seven, eight more minutes of, of, of movie, which would, of course, have extended the running time and made Warner Brothers even more uh, itchy. Right. And there's a complicating factor in that the fall from grace in this instance is meant to be ambiguous because it's a fall from a false grace, uh, which is based on the lie about Harvey Dent that made Batman retire at the end of the previous film. And that's my sticking point with uh, with the Dark Knight that we talked about earlier, where I never really felt convinced by that decision at the end of the film, that it didn't seem like the most logical uh, outgrowth of that sequence of events, and they're obviously trying to continue the theme of, uh, you know, to do essentially a, a liberal film about a vigilante hero, they have to suggest that uh, there is uh, something sort of bad and, and corrupt about Batman. And that comes into the uh, element of the fact that although Batman is an iconic hero, uh, and just to uh, review terms for a moment, an iconic hero is the sort of classic hero who typically uh, is not changed by events, does not undergo a dramatic arc, 
but rather uh, confronts disorder, uh, remains true to themselves, and restores order to uh, an external situation. And so classic iconic heroes are uh, Sherlock Holmes, Conan the Barbarian, Miss Marple, uh, House MD, and uh, Batman. And in these three movies, uh, you've seen the typical response of Hollywood films to iconic heroes, which is to try and make them into dramatic heroes who undergo an arc and start off in one position at, at the beginning of the film, undergo a personal transformation, and at the end are, are changed. And so uh, that's why you see that Hollywood films are much more comfortable with origin stories than they are with part two and whatever superhero series they want to continue. And it's why, uh, you know, when they rebooted Spider-Man this year, they didn't think it was sufficient to just go, this Spider-Man is the same Spider-Man. He's got a different girlfriend. He looks different, but it's Spider-Man. Let's have him go fight the lizard. Instead, they had to recapitulate the origin story and, and add new wrinkles to it because that's incredibly tempting to someone who has to take notes from Hollywood note givers is to give them that arc. And there's no arc more precise than the origin arc. And so in Batman Begins, you've got the origin arc. And in uh, The Dark Knight, you've got the reverse arc, where Batman goes from being Batman to deciding he doesn't want to be Batman. And then this is the reverse of that, where Batman... uh, realizes that he sort of wobbled his effort not to be Batman and it had these other bad effects that come back to roost. And at that point, uh, he then, uh, it seems like he's going to become Batman again, but then, and boy, I really hope you've saved this podcast for later if you haven't seen the movie. Uh, <laughs> then, uh, at the end, he just comes up with a better way of not being Batman anymore. Well, he, he, he has the realization that Batman is not a person. Batman is a myth. And uh, that, to some extent, is part of uh, the iconic Batman as well. I mean, going all the way back to that first frame where, you know, criminals are a superstitious and cowardly lot, uh, I will become a bat and strike terror into them. Once you've realized that a guy in a bat suit will strike terror into criminals, uh, if it's Bruce Wayne, he's obviously the best possible guy in a bat suit. But you can certainly replace him with... um, with uh, Batman 2.0 and go off to Florence with Anne Hathaway, which, again, if you're giving me the option of losing all the cartilage in my knees or going to Florence (laughs) with Anne Hathaway, I don't really have to think very long about that, Uh, especially if uh, I have uh, re-educated Batman 2.0 in the necessity of of Batman, the the specific necessity. I mean, again, God save you if you're listening to this before you've seen the movie. But um, the, uh, the the future Batman, uh, Blake, begins by uh, accepting, in, in, indeed insisting that there should be a Batman, but not understanding that Batman's role is to be the figure in the shadows who is not the city's hero. And uh, his confrontation with Jim Gordon over Jim's uh, over Gordon's um, uh, participation in the creation of the uh, of the legend of Harvey Dent. Uh, you know, I, I hope that and, and Gordon's response, I hope that someone will uh, get their hands uh, dirty for you uh, when you need it. And he realizes that, no, what he needs is to get his own hands dirty. He has to throw away the badge. He has to become the figure in the shadows. He has to be Batman and his acceptance of that, uh, of that, of that noble, of that heroic myth, of the noble lie in Platonic forms, is what makes this movie not a liberal uh, meditation on the vigilante, but a John Ford conservative meditation on the vigilante. Uh, the, the the this trilogy is a long, uh, in a way, a long Batman-filled version of the man who shot Liberty Valance, 
And while I agree that uh, the very, very tail end of the Dark Knight sort of hustled that realization along in a way, I think that the fundamental realization is not incompatible with Batman, certainly with the Batman of the world created by Nolan throughout the whole trilogy. Well, and of course, the man who shot Liberty Valance is late Ford when there are uh, questions and ambiguities creeping into the Western myth. And here you have those questions and ambiguities surrounding uh, these surveillance uh, network that is uh, that some of the uh, plot machinery on the, in the second film turns on. And then in the, this film, the whole consequence of, uh, you know, achieving public order uh, through a, a massive and unsustainable deception. So it's uh, like a good drama. It actually doesn't stack the deck. It doesn't take a particular political perspective and reinforce it. But instead, it has two uh, unresolved tendencies uh, at war with one another and leaving you, the audience, to resolve the ambiguity one way or the other. We will have to have a future episode of Cinema Hut in which we discuss Stagecoach and the constant present of presence of ambiguity in Ford's work. Uh, but that is not the topic of today's Cinema Hut. We shall tease that for later. Indeed. Um, and just uh, to cap off Cinema Hut, I thought I would recommend another film that uh, is doing very well by indie standards, but it's not uh, obviously at the gigantic um, mega zillion dollar uh, level of uh, the Batman movies. And that's a film called uh, Beasts of the Southern Wild, uh, which is a uh, really interesting sort of almost kind of Terrence Malick style uh, meditation on uh, freedom and uh, uh, sticking to a, uh, whether you stick to a dying community in, in order to be part of yourself or uh, whether you survive. It has these sort of, uh, at the heart of it is a relationship between the uh, six-year-old little girl protagonist and her uh, extremely irresponsible father who uh, has taken her to live in this uh, area south of the levees uh, in New Orleans called the bathtub where uh, people live in a sort of uh, uh, crazy bacchanal of uh, being off the grid and being socially irresponsible and then that's threatened by a vast storm. Uh, once people uh, see it a little bit more we might be able to have a discussion about how much fantasy a film has to have in it to count as a fantastic film and therefore be uh, uh, geek-worthy, as it were, uh, whether fantastic elements uh, no longer count if they're part of a dream sequence or part of a, a abstracted representation of uh, the character's uh, desires. Uh, but at this point, uh, because not a lot of people will have seen it, I just want to uh, recommend that you uh, uh, grab it at your art house cinema uh, near you, or if you live in a benighted uh, corner of uh, film going, as most people do, to uh, keep an eye out for it when it shows up on uh, video and demand or uh, DVD. That brings us to the end of our second episode of Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Find us online at www.kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com. On Twitter, Ken is at Kenneth Height, and I'm at Robin D. Wise. See you next time. 